Wild West Podcast proudly presents Kicking About on the Prairie. As the moon retains her nature, through darkness spread itself before her face as a curtain, so the soul remains perfect, even in the bosom of the fool. The railways pushed westward across buffalo country, and the Texas cattle drives came up from the south. The Texas cattlemen drove their cattle to the railheads in Kansas, and overnight cattle towns like Abilene sprung civilization, profit, and vice out of the Kansas prairie. The following is a first-person account of George W. Brown and what it was like in western Kansas as a freighter, drover, buffalo hunter, and Indian scout. George W. Brown tells how he joined the time's growing commerce, traveling along the military routes in 1868. My name is George W. Brown. They call me Hoodoo Brown. I was born in Newton County, Missouri on March 20th, 1847. At the age of 18, I volunteered for service in the Union Army. I served with the 3rd Regiment of Missouri Volunteers. Following my discharge as an Army Scout, I traveled along the frontier working odd jobs until I reached Junction City, Kansas in 1868. Now, Junction City at the time had a lively appearance. Not a day passed, but what the streets were filled with conveyances from the country surrounding. The markets in this place produced a considerable amount of products from rich soil, including wood, stone, and dairy. Junction City, a growing settlement, barred away with indispensable life from the stores and the ladies from out of town, visited this thriving city in good numbers. The ladies' presence drew my attention to this place and caused me to wipe the dust from my clothes and brush my hair at least twice per week. I no doubt became fond of this place, but I knew my fantasies would not provide me food nor shelter. So to offset my baser needs, I decided to seek employment. The locals shared with me of a need for men to work the freight wagons along the military roads, so I applied for a job with a freighter unit. Within the hour, I was hired on as a bullwhacker to haul wood for the government with an outfit bound for Fort Wallace. Now, this bullwhacking business took me by great surprise. I learned very quickly that the job was no easy task, yet this offered me a life of adventure and freedom from social restraint. My wagon boss told me that I should consider this experience as an education and that no man's life is complete unless he spent a season on the plains. He believed that habits learned while bullwhacking would produce in me the attitudes of a frontier bully. The aristocratic blue-body paneled government wagon that was awarded me had an iron axle mostly made for creek bed crossing. It weighed 4,000 pounds and had a tongue 13 feet long. The hind wheel weighed 300 pounds and was 64 inches in diameter. The ends of the wagon bed were straight, making the structure resemble a box. I was also given a bullwhacker's whip. The whip was an institution in itself. It weighed five and one half pounds. The whip short stock of ash had a lash of undressed rawhide nearly two inches in diameter and about 10 feet long, ending in a thong of buckskin. To wield this 10 foot long lash of buckskin required the strength from my groins. I quickly learned how to crack this manly tool with a flourish and smart jerk while keeping my ears intact. The crack sound was like a pistol shot, creating a mist of hair and blood start where the cruel thong had cut like a bullet into the hide of some recalcitrant oxen. I soon became proud of my whip and of my ability to use it. 
It gave me a sign of membership in the Bullwhackers fraternity. It was like becoming a democratic prairie man with the opportunity to be aristocratic and excel those of lesser training and strut my ability among my group. Here I had my first experience in yoking up wild Texas steers. Now these steers were not fond of their harnesses and we spent several days taming most of the wild cattle. The men had plenty of trouble getting a train of wagons underway. One bullwhacker's first attempt at driving ended in a ludicrous failure. The struggle ended, in fact, in a double knot, every steer having its feet over every chain, and most of the yokes turned upside down. It was near 4 o'clock in the afternoon before the order to start was given. None of the outfit of bullwhackers was seasoned hands, and many of the longhorn steers came unyoked. The customary plan of the march was two drives each day. An early morning drive, usually made before breakfast, ended at 8, 9.30, or probably 10 o'clock. If breakfast was taken first, the drive might extend until 11 o'clock. But in any case, the morning camp depended on feed and water for the cattle, the weather conditions, and favorable camping grounds. During the rest periods, the cattle were unyoked, watered, and herded on the grass, and the men had their first meal of the day. The train on which I bullwhacked had two wagon upsets the second day out, and when night came, only a mile of the trail had been covered. The next morning, the overhead sky burst over us like a jewel shining in the sun when we discovered most of the steers had wandered down into a nearby creek. The boss told me to go down on the creek and drive them back. Grabbing my hat from the ground where I was sitting, I approached the boss who stood over me. What'll I ride? Your horse? The boss stepped up into my face. His face was suffused with rage. His mouth was small and rigid, as if only used for the sort of smiles that mask cruelty, perhaps born of a lifetime of suspicion and the special kind of superiority that radiates contempt. It was one of those mouths that only twitch upward when a deception is achieved. My boss screamed, You go down and drive him out on foot. I stepped back with puzzlement. I can't drive them wild steers afoot. My boss glared back at me, quivering in anger, ready to snap. If you can't do that, you can quit, he said. And quit I did. I often thought this quarrel with the wagon boss was a fortunate turn of events for me, even though I felt like a bankrupt lad stripped of my dignity and my job. I found out later this bull train continued on its way up to Fort Wallace, and on a trip back, the Indians killed seven of the men. I was uncharitable enough to hope that my unreasonable wagon boss was one of the numbers who never returned. I left the bullwhacken profession with a better ending in mind and traveled to Abilene. I reached Abilene after a few days' march. There I found one of the wickedest towns I ever saw in my life. Abilene was at the point of this date, September 1868, where the Texas cattle herds reached what was then the western terminus of the Kansas Pacific Railroad, now incorporated into the Union Pacific Railway system. From here, these vast herds were distributed to the markets and feeding zones far to the east. I got into the swim of these activities at once, working four or five days loading cattle cars. On another day while there, I met a man by the name of Young, and he said to me, What are you doing here? When I told him I didn't have any permanent job, 
He then said he was camped out north of town on a little creek and continued, Some of these days soon, I'm going to buy a herd of cattle, and I'll need some hands to drive them to Colorado. I've got a little team of mules out there, and if you'll go out and stay with me till I buy those cattle, I'll give you a job. I said, All right, I'll go with you. I can only say for the short time I knew Mr. Young, he had become a slave to his own way of thinking. He did not waste time on the non-essentials. He had his bed in a covered wagon out there a mile and a half from town, and the first night we went to go to bed, he pulled out and showed me the biggest roll of money I ever saw in my life. Mr. Young was a methodical individual who kept his campsite in immaculate order and wanted me, as disorganized as I was, to keep his makeshift home as orderly as a military camp. I did not mind his order of business, as long as he had the money to pay me for work. It was but a few days till he bought 600 head of cattle, and that night when we went to bed I said, your roll's not quite so big as it was. He said, no, not quite, but I ain't broke yet. And he pulled out the roll and showed it to me again. I could see very little difference in the size, and this is the truth, too. I've often thought what short work those Abilene Tufts would have made of us had they only known of this money. I've wondered, too, at Mr. Young showing such a great roll to me, a total stranger to him. Well, it was only a few days till we started for Colorado. A man named Owen M. Smith brought 1,500 head of cattle for the Colorado Range, and merging them with Young's, we moved them out on a long hike together. Smith, being a Texas drover of ripe experience, and Young, with no cattle lore worth mentioning, gave Smith the upper hand. He was installed as the manager in full control. Now this man Smith, he was a real wrangler. He taught me a few things about cowboy culture and driving large herds of cattle. Mr. Smith was our trail boss, and he had what I call horse sense. He was a practical man, strong and direct. He was the kind of man who believed in a cause and put the driving of those cattle to Colorado before he thought about the welfare of the rest of us. The plains environment where he worked was a flat, treeless place with a vague horizon and vast distances to overcome. To drive this herd to Colorado, I had to learn a little about moving cattle along a trail. When we first put down the trail, Mr. Smith made us drive the cattle briskly for several days. He made us closely guard the herds so that they would stay bunched together and not break away. Since I was new at the job, 21 at the time, I was selected as a drag rider. I rode at the back of the herd where the cattle bunched together, keeping the herd moving and eating plenty of dust. The first few days of the drive, the cattle were rounded up compactly at sunset. At night, half of the men slept until midnight, while the other half would ride round and round the bed ground. So it was we went forward for the first few nights. We camped one night on the bottom opposite Fort Zara. This camp was some 65 miles east of Fort Dodge. The next morning, we received orders from the commanding officer at the fort not to go any further without an escort. We continued there for three days as a result, but got no escort. The Indians were very bad. They were in plain sight and camped on the south side of the river. Despairing of getting an escort and contrary to orders, we went forward, soon reaching Pawnee Rock and camping a few miles beyond for dinner. A 
on the south side of the river, armed bands of Indians were in constant view, passing from hilltop to hilltop, watching for a chance to attack or stampede the animals. We were all on edge and restless as a blue bottle fly on a warm summer's day. After dinner, Smith ascended a sand hill and observed a big cloud of dust on the road from Fort Dodge to Larnet. Smith ran down the hill, screaming at the top of his lungs, I believe we'll be attacked by Indians in a few minutes. Grabbing our guns, we began running back and forth like frightened sheep, settling into our post, waiting for the attack. From our position overlooking the road, the dust began to settle. It was then we recognized the dirt driven up from the road was not made by Indians at all, but a column of soldiers. It troubled me that Mr. Smith mistook the dust on the road for a band of Indians. I exclaimed my anger with Mr. Smith, plainly visible. You gave us all an unnecessary scare. Everyone in these parts knows Indians have their own trails and would not use a man-made road. Mr. Smith showed his displeasure with me and told me to find my own way down the trail to Fort Dodge. Two other men quit with me and we went the distance from Pawnee Rock down the trail until we reached Fort Dodge. We were hungry, tired, and penniless when we arrived at the fort. We decided to see if we could get a few handouts from the quartermaster. He gave us a five-day supply of rations, asking us in return to ride along in an ambulance headed to Fort Larned. Fort Larned was established in 1859 to protect travelers on the Santa Fe Trail from Indian attack. The fort was situated on the banks of the Pawnee River. The fort was first developed from a group of adobe buildings. At the time of my arrival, substantial sandstone structures had been completed. The fort now served as a disbursement point for Indian annuities. I did not stay long at Fort Larned, for I was still in need of work. I thought I might work in another place, so I joined a mule team departing for Fort Harker. After a few days of travel along a dusty road, we arrived at Fort Harker, where I joined a second mule train bound for Fort Hayes. The train bound for Fort Hayes was made up of 25 wagons. Each wagon had a six-mule team. I traveled four days with this mule train, 65 miles west up the Smoky Hill River, with Jack Dickey and his assistant, a man named A.J. Peacock, in hopes of getting a job. After arriving at Fort Hayes, Still in need of a job, some of the boys and I traveled north, a mile and a half over to Hayes City. We arrived in the evening of October 28th, 1868.